0: Turn, if you would, tonight to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. It's good to see everyone here this evening. Hope you had a good afternoon. Let's get started in a word of prayer. Father, it is good to be in your house tonight. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord for the truth and song that we can enjoy this evening, and I pray that you would uh, help me tonight to say what would be uh, necessary. Lord, that you'd help me to to keep from saying anything that would not be necessary, anything that would not be a help. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Most of you know that uh, three weeks ago we came to chapter 8 in our study of Hebrews, and in doing so you'll remember that the writer said to fellow Jews, that of everything that had been written to this point, this was the most important thing they needed to hear, that the work of Christ was finished, that the work of Christ was complete. There was nothing else that needed to be done on the part of Christ. There was nothing else that needed to be accomplished by Christ. And uh, the the work of God was complete. And yet, two weeks ago, as we looked in... uh, Uh, The next few verses after that, it was clear that Christ was not just sitting doing nothing now, but that Christ is the mediator of all men between us and God. And if you think about that, that is a wonderful truth to consider. It is through the work of Christ that we are able to be saved. It is, able, or it is through the work of Christ that we are able to uh, go to God in times of need for direction or grace or peace or strength or comfort, whatever it may be. And so when you think about the number of people who go to God on a daily basis through Christ, you recognize just how active the Lord stays on our behalf. And that is something that we should be thankful for. I don't know if that's affected you in the last couple of weeks like it has me, but there have been times, even this morning at men's prayer meeting, as we were having our our time of prayer, I just thought to think for a moment that the Lord is listening to every one of us and He is the mediator on behalf of every one of us to God for what we are bringing to Him, and then you multiply that times the thousands and millions of people who are praying on a daily basis, that is an amazing thing. We need to be thankful for that, and I hope that we are, and I hope that we don't lose sight of what Christ is doing on our behalf. This evening, we're going to finish looking at chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 7 through 13 this evening. We will not cover everything in great detail. I think you'll understand why in just a couple of moments, but before we get to the text, I want us to think about something that will play into the message here in a few moments. I don't know. I used to say, I know this has happened to everyone, and I've learned that it's probably not safe for me to say that unless it's like everyone has eaten at some point, okay? I know that we've all done that. I don't know that this has happened to all of us, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's happened to many of us, if not the majority or all of us. But it would go something like this. A person hearing something... For whatever reason, that person decides to dismiss what they've just heard. And then at some point in the future, what they heard and chose to dismiss comes back to haunt them. Now, again, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it could look something like this. Maybe a teacher is speaking to a student, and the teacher says something like this. Young man or young woman, you need to understand something, that if you don't get your grades up in the next few weeks, you will not be able to graduate. Well, you know, that kid, they're just too smart. They're too cool for everything. And so they're going to dismiss what the teacher has said. I'm not going to to change my study habits. I'm not going to change my test-taking skills. I'm not going to worry about any of that. I'm just going to keep on doing what I've been doing. And and they're going to let me graduate. They're going to let me get on through. They're they're, they're going to do that. I know they will, only to find out come graduation time, uh, I, I told you, you're not graduating. Those words that were spoken a couple of months prior have now come back to haunt that student because they had a chance to do something, but they chose not to. It could look something like this. One friend says to another friend, Hey, listen, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm not trying to be the Holy Spirit in your life. I, I'm not trying to, to jump in to something that really isn't any of my business, but I think you need to consider this. I, I think you need to be mindful of this. I, I think you need to give some consideration to this. And for whatever reason, the friend who has been admonished, the friend who has been encouraged by the other person, For whatever reason, they dismiss it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just your opinion. I mean, I appreciate it. That's that's fine. But no, I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing. I'm not going to change anything. That's certainly within their right to do so, correct? And yet we've all seen this happen over the course of our lives. The person who chose to ignore and dismiss what the friend has said, man, things played out just like the friend warned they would. and, And now that person is sitting there having to play over and over and over in their mind everything that was said to them. If that has ever happened to you, here's what you know. That is a miserable position to be in. To have been warned, to have dismissed it for whatever reason, and now you have to replay that over and over in your mind even when you don't want to? Sometimes when you would like to just be able to say thoughts get out of my head and it's not going to change anything, that is a miserable position to be in. If you've never been there, I hope you are never there. But for those of us who have been, you know I'm telling you the truth. It is no fun to have to eat the words that we chose to dismiss and deal with all that goes with that. Now, this evening, as we will hold on to that thought, I I trust for a couple of moments... I want us to remember who the writer is writing to. The book is entitled Hebrews, which means this book is written to fellow Jews, okay, fellow Israelites. And as we have gone through this study for the last several months, here is what has been clear. There are times that it is obvious that the writer is writing to Jews who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet there are other times in this letter that it is clear that the writer is writing to Jews who have chosen for whatever reason not to place their faith in the work of Jesus Christ. So it's been kind of back and forth at times. At times it's been confusing. At times it's been difficult to fully understand. But nonetheless, that is what has happened. Now, Remembering what's been said in chapter 8 to this point, that they needed to know that the work of Christ was complete and that the work of Christ continues, though, in heaven as a mediator on behalf of all men, as we come to verse number 7, here is what the writer declares. He says, "...for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second." So in verse number seven, he brings again the attention of the readers to the covenants, the first covenant and the second covenant, what we would call the old system of works or the old system of, of religion and activity, so to speak, and now this new covenant or this new approach to religious life and what we would call Christian living. And so he says in verse number seven, for if that first commandment had been faultless, What does it mean for something to be faultless? It means this, for something to be without error. It means for it to be blameless or free from defect. And so what the writer is saying is is he is not suggesting, okay, get, get this into your mind. I'm sure that you do already. But he is not suggesting that God created a flawed system in the Old Covenant. Okay, it's not as though God set up the Old Covenant or the First Covenant and then sat back and reevaluated and said, man, did I mess up on that one. That is not at all what God did. But what God did is, is He created a system. He created an order of things by way of the religious exercises and the religious practices of His people. He set up a system that He knew that in the implementation of it that it would have limitations as to what it could accomplish. All right, And so God knew that from the very beginning and and, and it's been thoroughly explained in this book that, that the old law, the old system, it, there were just certain things that it could not do. And one of the things that it could not do is that it could not complete the work in the life of an individual as it related to their relationship with Christ. And so in verse number 7 he says this, If that first covenant had been faultless, had there not been anything wrong with it, by way of making us right with God and the relationship right with God, then should no place have been sought for the second. This is very simple to understand if if you pay attention to this. If the first covenant had done everything that was needed in the life of an individual as it relates to their relationship with God, then there would be no need for a second covenant to come in and to abolish the first covenant and replace it with a new set of rules so to speak. Again, all you have to do is go back to verse number 18 of chapter 7 where he's talking about the the old covenant. He said, For there is verily a disannulling of the the commandment, the old prescribed order of things going before for the weakness and profitableness thereof. Again, there were just certain things that the first covenant could not do. And so he's saying if it was everything it was supposed to be or needed to be, there would be no need for a new covenant. Now, understanding all that, we come to verse number 8. Now, I don't know if you've ever read through Hebrews and if you've done so and tried to keep it all straight, but you come to certain portions and you just say, I have no idea what that meant. If you've ever done that, then you've probably come to verse number 8 of chapter 8 and come to this conclusion, I have no idea what it meant, but I'm just going to keep on trucking and just get on past it and come to something hopefully in the future that I understand. I say that for a reason. Verse number 8 down through verse number 12 makes no sense at all if you do not understand the context of it. See, in verse number 8 he says, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And down through verse number 12, here is what you will discover. Very important that you understand this, that you see this, that you hear this. In chapter 8, verse number 8, here is what the writer of Hebrews begins doing. He begins quoting almost word for word the words of Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Don't do it tonight, but if at some point this week you want to go read Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, you will find that it is almost a word for word quote of chapter 8, verse 8, down through verse number 12, And so what the writer is saying is this, for finding fault with them, he, that being Jeremiah, saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. So, so what does that mean? It means this, that the writer of Hebrews was taking the attention of the Jews in his day back to the words that Jeremiah had prophesied almost a thousand years prior to the writing of the letter of Hebrews. What was he doing? He was reminding them of what the prophet Jeremiah had said about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and the Old Law. And you've got to remember that for the Jews, they would have considered the, the words of Jeremiah to be important, to be significant. And, and so he is bringing this to their attention that listen, it is not just me talking about a new covenant replacing the old covenant. It's not just me who is talking about how the old has been abolished and, and it was weak and unprofitable and, and things of that nature. He said, I want to remind you what Jeremiah said back in his writings you got to love the understanding of history in the Scripture. I just want to throw that in real quick. I mean, these people knew their history, and you have to appreciate that. If you don't know history, you know this. You're bound to repeat it. And if you don't learn their history, you're, you're going to make the same mistake. So, so anyways, just that was extra for free, all right? Verse number 10, "...for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel." Remember, prophesied a thousand years prior to this writing. He said, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. "...in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old." So we understand that, that again, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah and what was recorded in chapter 31. So notice in verse number 13, he said this, "...in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old." What does that mean? It means this, that with the arrival of the new covenant, the previous covenant is now the old covenant. Doesn't matter what you think of it With the new covenant It automatically made that covenant The old covenant Fine So notice what he said next Now that which decayeth and waxeth old Is ready to vanish away Now that which decayeth and waxeth old Is ready to vanish away What does it mean for something to decay and wax old? I like this. It means this, for it to be old and worn out. Because of time and usage. How many of us tonight would say, I can identify with the old covenant? Just saying, you may feel sometimes a a little decayeth and waxeth oldeth. Right? You, you're tired. You're worn out. You feel like, man, I'm getting old and the years are catching up with us. All right, he is saying of the old covenant. He is saying of the old law, the old prescribed order of things, that, friends, it has decayed and it has waxed old. It is old and worn out and is ready to vanish away. It is ready to To vanish away. What does it mean whenever he uses the word vanish? It means this, to disappear or to be destroyed. To disappear or to be destroyed. Now, I want to say this not because what I'm about to tell you is so highly important, but this is kind of important if we want to understand the text and maybe remember something profitable the next time we're reading through Hebrews, okay? Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish, to disappear, or to be destroyed. It is going away. What are we talking about? Well, it seems like we're talking about the old covenant versus the new covenant. The new covenant comes in and it immediately makes the previous covenant an old covenant. Now I want us to think about something this evening. With the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Christ back into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father where he serves as an intercessor and a mediator on our behalf, was there anything gradual or transitional about that process by way of the covenant? The answer would be no. When the veil was rent in the Holy of Holies, okay, when you read through the Scripture, when the veil was rent in the Holy of Holies, when Christ declared it is finished, here is what happened without transition, without time lapsing, without it being a gradual process, Here is what happened in an instant, immediately, immediately the old system was obsolete, immediately the old system was abolished, and immediately the new covenant was ushered in and brought in what we refer to as the age of grace, what we are living in in tonight. Okay. So he says, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Well, if you use the word ready, here's what you discover. is It means that it is in the near future of it happening. So if we're talking about the Old Covenant and the, and the New Covenant and how the Old Covenant is old and worn out because of time and usage and very soon will be vanishing away, disappearing or being destroyed... Then the question some might have would be this how do you reconcile that because the new covenant was brought in when the veil was rent in the holy of holies the old covenant was immediately made obsolete so how can he say in chapter 8 verse number 13 that the 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 new covenant is here but the old covenant is ready to soon vanish away Just so you know you have to reconcile that in your mind So what is he talking about? Well, think about life for the typical, average, religious Jew. What was their centerpiece? What was everything in their religious life dependent upon? It was dependent upon their works or what their activity consisted of at the temple in Jerusalem. Okay this is so interesting and profitable if we'll process all this okay For the life of a religious Jew everything's centered on what we do at the temple by way of our relationship with God that's where the offerings come that's where the sacrifices come that's where everything is done by way of religious transaction between God and man. How long had the temple been in Jerusalem at the time of this writing? Scholars suggest that it had been in existence over 400 years. Think about the age of that. The temple in Jerusalem was over 400 years old. Now he says in chapter 8, verse number 13, Now that which decayeth and waxeth old, okay? It is old, it is worn out, it is ready, it is near to vanish away. It will soon disappear. It will soon be destroyed. Here is what many scholars believe, and I would tend to agree with them, that what the writer is doing is he is referencing the temple in Jerusalem and how it will soon disappear because it will soon be destroyed. Now, somebody says, "Uh, I don't know, hold on, hold on, hold on. It would be easy, would it not, for Jews to dismiss the idea that something that's been around for over 400 years was about to disappear? Maybe you don't know how old this temple is. I've been going to this temple all my life. My parents brought me to this temple. My grandparents brought me to this temple. My great-grandparents came to this temple. My great-great-grandparents. I mean, how far back can you go back in your lineage by way of 400 years? You can go back a long ways and, and it would be very easy to dismiss what the writer was saying. But if you do the the study and if you do the research, here's what you discover again. Most scholars believe that the book of Hebrews was written sometime in the A.D. 60s. Some suggest mostly that it was around 65 to 66 A.D. When you continue to study and do a little bit of research, you know what you find? that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. Gone. Wiped out. Done away with. Destroyed. Disappeared. Gone. Now now, now follow this. Everything that a good Jew would have looked to by way of some kind of connection to God with their spiritual activity, it was now gone. The writer said already that the old covenant has been abolished, it's been replaced with something new that could complete and do the finished work. Okay, but for all of you Jews, who are holding on to your religious activity, for all of you Jews who are rejecting the completed work of Christ, what you need to hear and what you need to understand is, is the old covenant is now old because the new covenant has come in and replaced it, and that which has decayed and waxed old, it is soon going to vanish away and be gone. And I would imagine there were some Jews who heard that, who read that, who thought to themselves, that'll never happen, that is crazy, that is ridiculous, only to one day wake up and realize our temple and everything associated with it by way of our religious practice and everything we've done for hundreds of years, for hundreds of years, for hundreds of years, it is gone, which meant now from a religious standpoint they had nothing by way of substance to hold on to. Friends, for a devout Jew living in their day still wanting to hold on to the old system, still wanting to hold on to the old prescribed order of things, the old manner of religious activity, I want us to think about something. Those would have been haunting words to replay in your mind over and over and over again. He said, and we read. He reminded us of what Jeremiah said, and he told us himself that that which is decayed and waxed old is ready to vanish away. See, here's what you can't do in chapter 8, verse 13, and say, well, he's still talking about that. No, because that was already squared away, the old and the new. So there had to have been something else that the writer was referencing, and the only thing of significance still remaining in the life of a Jew in that day, in their day, would have been that of the temple. And so within just a few short years of reading what the writer was trying to convey to them, everything they had held on to and placed their trust and their confidence in for a right relationship with God was now abolished, and they had nothing. They had nothing. Somebody says, oh, okay, fine. Think about how hard that would have been for a practicing Jew at their time. I've I've, I've got nothing. We don't have a temple to worship in. We don't have a temple to bring our sacrifices to. We have no place to bring our offerings. I mean, there's not a holy of holies for the high priest to enter into on our behalf. There is nothing. It had to have been devastating to realize that everything they had held on to truly was as futile and worthless as they had been told it was. It had to have been hard. It had to have been difficult. Now somebody says, okay, okay, uh, that's fine. Bad for them. Who cares for us? Well, this evening I want us to think about a principle, all right, because I, I understand, okay, I completely understand that we are not Israelites, we are not Jews, we're not stuck in the old system, we're not wondering what system we should be following and adhering and, and, and things of that nature. I, I understand that, but I want us to think about something. I, I know I've touched on this on many occasions, and I know I dealt with it some this morning, but I want us to think about the culture that we live in, especially in our area today. We are living in a culture that is not short on religious association and religious activity. Uh, listen, I, I don't want to re-preach this morning's message, but I want to say this again this mor- or this evening because some did not hear it this morning or did not process it this morning, but we are not lacking finding people who can talk a good talk. it's not hard to find people who can say all the right things it's not difficult to find somebody who will talk about a faith who will talk about some kind of a religious system who will say something that that sounds religious in tone or or just in style they're everywhere So here we are living in our culture today, living in our society today. I know the specifics are different. I understand. I I understand. Trust me. I understand, and I want you to understand this. It's different, and yet here is what we've got. We've got people who are holding on to religious activity in their lives. I attend church every Sunday morning. You ever met people like this? Oh, I'm in my church every Sunday morning. Some would say things like this. Oh, yes, I used to go to church all the time whenever I was a kid, whenever I was a teenager, whenever I was a young person. Oh, yes, I've been in church many, 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 many times. Some people would say things like this. I used to go to church with my grandparents all the time. Some people would say things like this. Oh, yes, I'm very faithful to be at my church Whatever it may be. And and they point to certain things by way of religious activity that they are holding on to, that in their mind assures them a right relationship with God. It's not a practice of going to the temple, it's not a practice of bringing the offerings and the sacrifices. I understand, again, the differences, but we are dealing with people with a similar mentality, a similar mindset. That because of certain religious activities, I now have a right relationship with God. Now when someone of that opinion or someone of that persuasion makes their beliefs known in front of a true child of God, this is what they will hear so many times. There's more to a right relationship with God than religious activity. Because that is what a true Christian would want someone who is just religious to know. Correct? Now, I mean, think about this. If you work beside someone and they have placed their faith in all of eternity and their religious activity, and yet you and I know that they're placing their faith in their religious activity and not in the completed work of Christ, then surely we would want to speak up and say to them that that's not enough. Okay, apparently we not would not all want to say that, but some of us should want to say that. I thought I said that right. Whenever we come into contact with someone who's placed their faith in all the wrong things, a Christian ought to have a desire to say, that's not enough. Okay, never mind. We'll move on. Okay, so those words are said to the person who has placed all their faith in their religious activity, whatever it may be, and here is what the response is so many times of people in our culture. Thank you. That's nice. I appreciate it. However, I'm going to continue doing what I've always been doing. So they've just been confronted with something they need to hear, but for whatever reason, they dismiss what they've just heard. Now, as an individual dismisses what they have heard, by way of their religious activity, their religious association, and where true salvation is found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as they dismiss it for whatever reasons, here is what we know. We know that they are allowed to do so. They have the freedom of choice to make that decision. But you know what Luke chapter 16 would seem to indicate to us? that there are many people in hell today who knew better but for whatever reason dismissed what they knew and now they are in hell today and whatever knowledge they were confronted with continues to haunt them in all of eternity. Think, think about this principle here. Luke chapter 16, that's the rich man, okay? And, and, and he was dismissive of, of everything that he, he needed to be a recipient of, and I understand we're talking about the old covenant and the old system, but the Scripture still says that he lifted up his eyes in hell, okay? And, and he knew better because he didn't want his family to come to the same place of torment that he was in. Okay, And so I'm saying again, by way of principle, here's what we have. We have people who have placed their faith in religious activity, in their religious works, in their system. However long it goes back in their family, we've always been this, we've always been this, we've always been this. And so they dismiss the true declaration of the completed work of Christ and how a person can be saved if they'll just place their faith in Christ. And one day they wake up in hell. And they are forever reminded that they were given a chance and an opportunity to make things right. But they chose not to. Why do I say that on a Sunday night? Why do I bring that to our attention tonight, knowing who I'm preaching to? I say that tonight for this reason, because it concerns me that in the Baptist church, it seems like for so many people, and I know that only God and the Holy Spirit know, but it seems like for so many in the Baptist church, the testimony is not much different than it is with people in other denominations, in other faiths. Say, Brother Kyle, I don't know exactly what you mean. I, I just mean this, and I'm just going to make this point very quickly, and I'm just going to try to have you to think about this, and then we're going to wrap it up. But I think there are so many people sitting in Baptist churches who have placed their confidence for eternity in their religious activity in their daily lives. We go to church on Sunday mornings. We go to church on Sunday nights. We're back in church on Wednesday nights. We give our tithes. We give our offerings. We give to faith promise. We help with the special offering, whatever it may be. And, Brother Kyle, because of that, is that not good enough? And the answer would be no, that is not good enough. The Bible says that at some point we have to humble ourselves before the Lord. At some point we have to recognize the sinfulness of who we are. And at some point we have to repent and we have to call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. I mean, it's not as though it's this work and this process and this procedure that we have to go through. But there has to be some Holy Spirit conviction that only the power of God can put on a person's life. And in that moment we have to be willing to humble ourselves ourselves cry out to god ask him to save us in order to be safe and i'm telling you that as clear as the message has been presented in this church and so many other baptist churches all across this world i am fearful that there are people still sitting in churches and the only confidence they have is the confidence in what they have done and not what god has done And it scares me to death to think that there will be people in this church who will dismiss this message because I'm good. I'm okay. I-, I prayed the prayer, Brother Kyle. I-, I said what the person told me to say at v- Vacation Bible School. I'm good. Okay, but-, but when did you repent? When did you have that turnaround in your life? When did you do business with God about your sin? What are the marks of a changed life in your life today other than you now come to church? I am fearful that there are people in this church who will dismiss the message tonight. And if they do not change their heart at some point in the future, they will wake up in hell. And a message like tonight's will haunt them forever and ever and ever. Because all they really did was play games in their religious life. They were never serious. They were were never... They were never humble and contrite before the Lord. It was just something they decided to do, but they never placed their faith in the work of Christ. I just want to say this. Like the writer said to the fellow Hebrews that he obviously had a concern and a passion for in his day, I just want to say this, as he said of the temple, there's coming a day when that's going to be abolished, it's going to vanish, it'll disappear, it'll be destroyed. I want to say this today to every one of us so that I'm not accountable for your eternity, okay? I just want to say this, at some point you will wake up in eternity and what you did by way of religious activity will mean nothing. The only thing that will matter is when did you do business before an almighty God as it relates to your sin. It's going to happen. And we need to not dismiss this message. And if we're saved, then should there not be serious fruit of our salvation? The preacher shouldn't have to worry that a person's testimony is real because there ought to be enough fruit to solidify that testimony. And I'm telling you, for generations, Baptist preachers have been concerned that so many people in the church are placing their faith in their works and not what only God can do. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, There are people in hell today whose words of a preacher, of a friend, of a family member, etc., today still haunt them. And I don't want that to be you. So I'll stand tonight and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. I pray that you'd help us tonight. Lord, every one of us to take a moment and just say, Lord... is my faith in you. Lord, if you just look at the testimony of some, even in our own church, there are serious question marks that pop up, not because they don't say the right thing, but because there's not much fruit to that testimony. And Lord, it could be, and it probably is, that there are some in our church tonight and what they have placed their faith in is the works that they have always been associated with, but they've never placed their faith in you. And so if someone tonight needs to do business and and be made right with you, I pray that tonight they would. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.